This is the Education Gadfly Show. Or do not. not. Right, Mike Petrilli, you're Yoda-ish and you're, oh my God. You know, a a long time ago. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. Please welcome my special guest for this week, Patrick Corvington. Patrick, welcome to the show. It's great to be here, Mike. Hey, Patrick is the executive director at DC School Reform Now. We're going to hear all about that fantastic group uh, in a moment. But first, I need to welcome my co-host back from vacation, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. David, I understand you are a new uncle. Yes, I'm feeling very avuncular, Mike. <laughs> Good. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> yep. oh, you've been you saving that word, haven't you? I, I, I have, well, yeah. It's a, and have you changed a diaper in I, your new role as uncle? I I have tried. Uh, I've dabbled. Well, wait, wait, what do you mean you've tried? There's no such thing as trying. Either you have or you haven't. I mean, Mike did Petrilli, you hand the baby the, back the, with the a new do diaper or, do or not? not? Right, Mike Petrilli, you're Yoda-ish and you're... <sighs> oh, my God. You know, well, you know a long time ago, Rick Hess used to be uh, my, my co-host and... You know, famously, for a long time, he had never changed a diaper. And I do wonder if that's still true. You know, he's, huh. he's had two young kids. They're now out of diapers. I want to know if you're listening, Rick. Have you changed a diaper yet? I, I hope that's not true, honestly. <laughs> it's a rite of passage. Well, there is. It's a rite of passage. Rite Although, of passage. you know, uh, us think tank types are, are notorious for not being very good at practical right. things. Right. And, and there's nothing more practical than... I've written about diaper. changing a diaper. Have you? Oh, well, there you <laughs> go. Not? Then that counts. <laughs> all right. Well, so much to get to this week. Uh, and we're going to hear, first of all, about what DC, uh, DC School Reform Now is all about. So let's do that in Ed Reform Update. All right. So, Patrick, tell us. Uh, DC School Reform Now has been around for a little while. Tell us yeah. what, what you guys do as a group. So it was created about nine years ago um, to deal with school reform in D.C. At least back in the Michelle Reed days. And yep. so that all passed. For the past... That all happened, I should say, rather. Turn the page. Um, so we'll turn the page on that. Um, and so in the past three years or so, four years, we've been focusing on navigation. Uh, and so how do you ensure the low-income kids uh, can take full advantage of the choice environment and yeah. um, go through a choice counseling process mm-hmm. and select the best schools available to them? Yeah. So... Uh, it's much like the Ed Navigator models along many in the country. Yeah. And um, last year we served about 1,300 families, uh-huh. uh, mostly in Ward 7 and 8. Yeah. And so we feel pretty good about it and that it's going along well. I, you know, I love the term Navigator. There is a group called Ed Navigator. Yeah. I'm not sure everybody knows about them, but uh, Tim Daly started this group down yeah. in New Orleans and they're doing some work in some other places around the right. country. But the, look, the notion is, you know, say 20 years ago when school choice charter schools was getting started, there was a lot of talk about providing information Correct. to parents so they can make good choices, but it was pretty rudimentary. Uh, I remember, gosh, I mean, I must've been in my mid twenties flying out to Dayton, Ohio, where we do work at Fordham, helping to organize a school choice fair, mm-hmm. uh, you know, which is, you know, pretty basic model, but right. somewhat effective, but still, you know, they're just, we've, we've talked a lot in the decades since about how do you provide better information to parents, make sure the data is high quality mm-hmm. and just overcome the hurdles that make right. it so much harder, especially for parents who, uh, you know, are themselves lower income, maybe working two jobs, maybe didn't get a great education themselves, right. uh, because if you don't, you worry that there's going to be issues around equity. And so D- what does it look like for you Well, guys? you know, DC is a unique place because it's pretty far advanced of, uh, of most areas in terms of this. Yes. Right. So we've got a great school report card, a new star rating system. Yeah. It's fantastic. Uh, great folks at Aussie pull that together. And um, so the issue for us is how do we ensure that parents are fully able to take 
uh, advantage of that. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, we do a pretty thorough needs assessment with parents, see where they are, what they need, those kinds of things. And what we find is um, parents struggle with what we all struggle with. What's the best environment for my kid? How do I choose that school? Where are the kids going? How far is the school from us? And we provide the counseling. So it's not just getting them connected, but really working through with them. What do you really need mm-hmm. and what's realistic before filling out the application? Yeah, no, it's great. And you imagine yeah. if this could happen everywhere. I mean, now, as you say, D.C., is a place where there's a lot of school choice. That's right. Half the kids are in charter schools. You've also got a private school choice program, small one, but you've right. got one. Uh, and even in the public sector, there, for a long time, there's this history of kids going out of boundary. Correct. And it's something like only 25% of kids in DC go to their neighborhood school. That's right. So this is a place where choice is kind of in the water. It's right. always fascinating to me as a parent in Montgomery County, Maryland. Likewise. Uh, right. Where <laughs> you go across the border and there's... Almost no choices. That's right. Uh, That's you right. know, there's plain vanilla and plain vanilla. That's right. Uh, and, you know, thankfully that plain vanilla is right. usually pretty good. Right. So but I, it's not, uh, but it certainly doesn't uh, mean that you can customize or right. find lots of different models. Where in right. D.C., I mean, you've got, you know, my favorite example is always the, the Latin American Montessori bilingual charter school yeah. where you've got, you know, not, not only <laughs> do you have a bilingual school, right. you've got a Montessori school, right. you've got a charter school. I mean, right. this is just and like Nirvana not, for, right. you know, right. Uh, right. Gen X parents and millennial right. parents. I mean, you can't beat this. No, it's a, it's a great environment I, for that. I, I'm curious is um, you said 1300 parents. Yeah. Is it, is it, would you do more if you had more capacity yeah. or okay. We're limited only by capacity. I mean, that's really the issue that the need is tremendous. And what we yeah. find is that um, uh, we turn away parents or we serve them in very limited ways. Um, it really is a capacity yeah, issue yeah. for us. Interesting. And yeah. I mean, you may not have the numbers. I'm just curious, like how much does it cost to, to, to go through this process? It sounds like it's fairly involved. Well, parent. it depends, right? So we have three tiers of service based on the parents. So we have our advanced adopters. These are parents who can do this with a phone call. We have our stable and supported parents, which need a phone call or two, maybe an in-person visit. Then we call our pressure families, those really under pressure of poverty, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And they need really hands-on uh, support. So one or two visits at their home, those kind mm-hmm. of things. So it varies by by kind of family. Um, and based on our mission, we want to serve more and more pressure families, the ones yeah. that really fall through the cracks. Right? So, you know, Patrick, that those of us in education reform often have focused on choice as the yep. way to empower parents. Mm-hmm. And for good reason. Uh, it is really hard in our system to find other ways for parents to have a voice. You know, there's this famous book way back when about, you know, power between being either a voice or an exit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we have focused on exit, mm-hmm. but it's hard to exit a school that you've already chosen, yeah. right? And and there are often cases, I'm not saying I'm necessarily speaking personally, uh, but where, you know, you might be mostly satisfied with the school. You think the school's pretty good, but you wish it could be great. Yeah. And, you know, other parents feel the same way and you'd like to do something to, to try to bring that about. Right. <laughs> have you found anything that works uh, either in D.C. or Montgomery County or anywhere else in terms of actually getting parents to be effective advocates, not just for their own kids, but for school improvement writ large? Yeah. So I would say that um, I think of it in two ways, right? So there's a general parent engagement around uh, how many of us engage in our kids' schools, right? So it's being a classroom parent, it's volunteering for activities and and those kind of things, right? And the the benefit of that is uh, you're part of the school community in a way that gets you to better understand. So what's happening there, right? So when something comes up, you sort of have an infrastructure with other parents to do that, right? And by the way, we are all doing a lot of this right now, back to school time, right? I got got two back to school nights this week. I was at a back to school dance on Friday. 
Yeah. So, uh, showing off my moves, of course, right. Dave. Yeah. Uh, but uh, right, okay. So so showing right, moving up. Moving on. <laughs> right, exactly. Oh, we can show a clip of that, uh, Andrew. Please uh, don't. If you want on the web. Uh, no, he's shaking his head. All right. So right. So right. So, so being so those involved. Exactly. Right. Now we also know that um, that can be difficult for low-income parents who are yeah. pressured by so many things: yep. uh, uh, work, environment, those kind of things. But also maybe not feeling welcome at the school where they go to. Right. Yeah. So we know a lot of that. Yeah. Um, I think that's one bucket of things. The other bucket of things I would say is when something happens that you want to change in your school. Yeah. You're not happy with a particular approach with the way the guidance counselor's office is working or mm-hmm. something like that. And so what do you do about that, about changing that particular thing? And you know, what I always say when I talk to parents about an issue in the school mm-hmm. is, you know, you're not the only one. Yeah. If there's something happening, there are probably other parents who are going through the same thing. Yep. Right. So the first step is connecting with other parents mm-hmm. is how can I talk to other parents, whether it's through a listserv mm-hmm. or connecting with them after school and saying, are you having this experience as well with whatever the issue yeah. might be? Right. So once that connection happens, um, then you can start thinking about, well, what are we going to do about it? Who do we talk to about? It? How do we do this? Right. Yeah. And, you know, the thing is, we know that teachers, school administrators are they're accustomed to complaints. Yeah. Right. Parents are always complaining about something. So how do you make your voice rise above the, the din yeah. of, of other voices? Right. And one of the things I say to parents is um, be specific. I mean, the mm-hmm. specificity is really important. You know, what are you really upset about and what do you want to see happen by when? Yeah. Um, and getting that across is yeah. really, really yeah. important. Because then you can get to an administrator and say, here's what I want. Here's what I want it by. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing about schools is that they function on a calendar, mm-hmm. right? And so getting change before the end of the year that affects your student and your family can be mm-hmm. hard, right? Because you may discover this in October or November. Mm-hmm. And by the time you get action, it's spring. And so you start thinking, well, you know, my, my kid's only here for another couple months, two or three months. So what do we do, right? So that's something to keep in mind in terms of really yeah. applying the right pressure. No, this, this is great. And and the listserv point is interesting. I, yeah. I put something out on Twitter last week that blew up, uh, you know, basically saying, you know, should we have some kind of site where parents right. can talk, including anonymously if right. we need to? Because I would assume that if you are talking with other parents, especially in a kind of quasi-public way, like mm-hmm. on a Facebook group or listserv, you know, you worry it could get back to the principal, right. you know, or if, and, and so, oh, people were just all over me. And, and part of it was saying, people saying, well, come on, Mike, have you heard of Facebook or have you heard of listserv, right. uh, you know, or a, a group like DC Urban Moms, right. you know, uh, other people saying, oh my God, that's a disaster. I mean, mm-hmm. that you get a bunch of parents, especially affluent parents right. on these listservs and it's just, you know, it's like the comment section of a blog times a yeah. hundred. I mean, yeah. we talk in our yeah. country right now about how hard it is for us to be civil to each other. I mean, yeah. you can get these, you know, people being horrific at each other or yeah. it feeling like parents just <laughs> trying to say basically, hey, I want more for my kid. That's right. And, and I have found that when, when I've tried to go to some administrators, uh, especially because, you know, I'm coming from Bethesda, Maryland, right. because they look at me and they say, this kid, this guy is privileged, all true, right? right? That they say, oh, this guy's just, you know, being privileged. Right. Uh, and so they shut down. Right. And so it's like, it's like, how can we try to get the message across that says, look, first of all, I'm, I'm not trying to get something for my own kid. Right. Okay. I, I really am folk interested in helping to improve the school right. as a whole. Right. Um, a, you know, and I'm not asking to take any resources away from anybody right. else. I, it's simply like, can't we do something more effectively? Right. Uh, it, it's it's really hard. This is really yeah. hard. And, and, I'm and, the and, one you know, writing I, in all caps. Look, I, I hate. Like, I, I, I look. What happens? Is I hit my head against the wall. And I start right. to think it's there's nothing you can do other right. than 
you know, put pressure via school right. choice, right. but that's not a satisfying answer. Yeah. I mean, you can find yourself tilting windmills on this one and, and um, you know, the power of numbers matters here, I think is, is part of it, right? Yeah. That, that having multiple parents, uh, we had an incident in our school, uh, in one of our schools um, where it really took a group of parents to say, you know what, this actually isn't working. Yeah. And so we can't get change with the teacher. We're going to go to the principal, lay it out really carefully. Here's what we want. And we, we were able to get change, That's but great. it was not easy. And so yeah. for a bunch of affluent parents, it wasn't easy. It's that much harder for low-income parents, yeah. right? Yeah. And so um, it, there isn't an easy answer, but mm-hmm. I think that um, parents connecting to each other and you know, part of building community in schools um, you know, with parents and, and teachers is that when something like that happens, you're more able to affect change, right? Mm-hmm. Because you already have an infrastructure that you can draw upon. Yeah. Um, and it's hard to, to sort of, the only time I connect with my principal when I have something to complain about. Right? Yeah, and so that's, that, right. and that's hard that's to do right. because we all have that's lives we have to live and all yeah. that. So yeah, yeah, yeah. this is a pretty loaded question, but I'm just curious. I mean, when, when parents are pressuring principals, administrators, schools, is there, do you find that there are differences in terms of the way administrators respond based on whether it's a charter school or a traditional public school? I mean, because they do, administrators face different incentives, yeah. right? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, okay. All right. That was, yeah. I really don't know, but I don't. I mean, I think it's a different kind. I mean, I think it's a different kind of administrative process, different kind of infrastructure, different kind of leadership structure. So it's hard for me to to gauge that. Look, I, I, you know, I've now been a part of now, I guess, I mean, my my anecdote of one, right. I've been a part of three different school communities in terms of preschool and elementary and now middle. And, uh, you know, look, I think a lot of it just depends on the leadership. Uh, I think, you know, when we we sent our uh, sons to a private preschool and and there was part of a larger uh, private school. School. And you did get mm-hmm. this sense that there was a little more of a customer yeah. uh, orientation, you know, customer service orientation. Yeah. Of course. I mean, they were, you know, even though it's a nonprofit, they know that they, they were desperate to hold on to kids. They right. didn't have, they weren't a kind of school where they right. could say no to kids. <clears throat> they needed that tuition. Uh, and so they, at the least, you know, once a year asked our, for our input. Right. I mean, at my kids' elementary school, there's not even a suggestion box. Right. You know, I mean, the, and the principal makes it very clear that she does not want our input. Uh, so, you know, yeah, when, we, uh, and, and, you know, and, and, and look, it's easy for the system to say, you know, we're the system, right. you know, you're getting this service from us for free. Right. Um, and we know best. And and that's a frustrating place to yeah, be. As a yeah, that's a great point. Um, so I would say leadership matters. Right. I mean, it's one of the critical, you know, school leadership matters. And we have had uh, two public school experiences and one private school experience and they've been mixed. And, and in some cases we had that experience where the principal said, you know what, I'm actually not interested in feedback. Um, I'm I'm just, I'm just not. Um, uh, And I'm going to demonstrate that by listening to what you're saying and ignoring you. Yes. Right. Um, While another school, uh, the principal is extraordinarily responsive, a public school. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And in the private school, it's been mixed. So I I think it really depends. And part of it is, um, parents demanding a certain kind of interaction, right? I mean, that's yeah. a really critical part of it, enforcing leadership to behave in a certain way. Uh, again, recognizing what I said earlier is school is a time-limited process, yeah. right? So if, if this starts happening in my that's kids' right. junior year yeah. or seventh grade, yeah. how much do I want to get tick, engaged tick, tick, in this? Tick, tick, yeah, absolutely. exactly. All right, well, hey, so much helpful uh, information and advice. Thank you, Patrick. Sure. Again, Patrick Corvington, the executive director at DC School Reform Now. I hope you come back sometime soon. Be happy to. All right, thanks. And now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. Oh my gosh, so much good advice that Patrick was just giving us about getting parents involved. You know, 
as a parent, I am my head is spinning because this week, yeah. back to school night at middle school for Ooh. the first time. Nico is a sixth grader. Wow. Wow. It is so different than elementary <laughs> school. And it's they want you to butt out, right? Butt out or well, no, I, not really. first of all, just the logistics. I mean, you go to back to school night oh. and suddenly you got to meet seven teachers. Oh, and so right. it's like 10 minutes each. And then you run through the class. You, get a, out, you right? get a sense of how hard it is to get from class to class. You see these other parents, you know, and you're like waving to them. You <laughs> feel go. like you're back in middle school again. It's so weird. Um, anyways. Uh, and it, it, I know this is obvious and people listening are probably like, duh. Right. Mm. But I feel like <laughs> in so much of our work, we, we always talk about schools generically. Yeah. Like there's mm. the same thing. I'm like, oh my God, yeah. uh, th- th- this middle school has so little to do with elementary school. I mean, like yeah. a first grade classroom and a sixth grade experience yeah, and a 12th grade experience, totally yes. different. Huge and yet we kind of lump them all together. Well, I think it's yeah. depressing for education researchers, right? Like what if nothing generalizes ever, Yo, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, but it is, it is interesting no, that, that, I mean, you know, the bell schedule runs everything, right? right? I mean, this is such a huge decision in middle school. How do they use their time and and you know our school does kind of a block schedule and they have mm-hmm. an even days and odd days and it's it's you know it seems pretty good mm-hmm. uh versus elementary where everything is kind of fluid yeah gotta get to class on time oh my god or and, 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 and my day i slammed the his, door after when the bell rang the door was oh, slammed and was it? you open that door you're late yeah <laughs> and the lockers by the way these lockers that have got to be 50 years old and oh, yeah. do not open easily and do they use them anymore i feel like kids oh, yeah. really, oh they do okay. well they're supposed to the deal is the phones are supposed to be in the locker All so that's right. why the sure that's gonna happen the whole bullying <sighs> economy works around lockers oh. so you can't just get exactly yeah 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 <laughs> the, 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 thank you david good point all right, but Still, I digress. digress. I digress. Uh, wow. So anyways, wow. expect me to write a lot about middle school in the years. Time. All right, that'll be fun. All right, what you got, Amber? <laughs> we have a new study out in NBR from three economists out of Brown and Dartmouth. It's a little different from what I normally do, but it is so interesting. I hope mm-hmm. you guys like this. Okay. Uh, examines the impact of additional medical care for babies born at very low birth weight on various educational and other later life outcomes, hmm. including participation in and expenditures on social services. So they use three decades of birth records in Rhode Island from about 1984 to 2016, covers about 410,000 births as a basis for a regression discontinuity design where they examine the lives of babies born just over and under the birth weight of 1,500 grams, which is just 3.3 pounds, Mm. by the way. Children born under this weight are identified as very low birth weight, VLBW, mm-hmm. and hence the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends automatically admitting them to the NICU, where they receive a range of intensive care from various health professionals, as well as recommends that they receive follow-up after their hospital treatment. Mm-hmm. All right? But, uh, but do you know, are these mostly no, preemies or not necessarily? What's the difference between a preemie and a child born at 3.3 pounds? Well, okay. premature. I'm just saying yeah. like, oh, I, I don't mean, know. these I don't must be pre- mostly not kids Going full term, right? I I think so. I don't, they didn't specify like all that. The final sample includes over 2,700 children who weigh between 1,300 to 1,700 grams at birth. Again, that's Mm 2.8 to 3.7 pounds, which is above and below this Mm 1,500-gram threshold I just told you about for additional medical services. They look at a dizzying number of outcomes, including enrollment in SSI, which is Supplemental Security Income for Disabled Children, whether they repeated a grade, enrolled in special education services, their standardized test score performance in grades three through eight, whether they received a disciplinary offense in high school, 
whether they're prepared for college, including whether they took AP classes and other indicators, whether they enrolled in a two or four year college, I'm still wow. go- I'm still going. Oh my goodness. Whether they receive payments from Medicaid, nutritional assistance through the SNAP program, and temporary assistance for needy families. They also still not done. <laughs> they also calculate the school level value added of their schools that children attended to see if they were more likely to attend higher quality schools. Oh my goodness. Rhode Island has all yeah, this Rhode data. Island. Have you ever Justine Hastings? I don't I don't know okay. her at all, but uh-huh. I follow yeah. 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 This is how we liberals justify our interventions, by the way. Please continue. The findings. All right. They find significant large positive impacts for crossing the low birth rate threshold for educational outcomes at all levels. Mm. Children under the threshold perform 0.34 standard deviations better on test scores relative to those just above it. For each grade throughout childhood, they find impacts of similar magnitude. They also find significant effects on post-secondary educational enrollment. Crossing the threshold is linked to a 17.1 percentage point increase, that's 32%, Mm -hmm. in the likelihood of enrolling in any college by age 22. It is also associated with a 13 percentage point reduction in the likelihood of receiving a disciplinary offense in high school, which is a 72% decrease. Mm. There are also positive effects on the amount of social program expenditures that a child receives. By age 14, children under the low birth rate threshold receive about $67,000 less in social program expenditures Mm -hmm. relative to the approximately $146,000 spent on children above it. Mm -hmm. There are insignificant impacts on measures of school quality suggesting that the positive academic outcomes are not driven by parents selecting much better schools. There are also no impacts on enrollment in SSI or in special education services or on this college readiness indicator. Hmm. Lots of good stuff. Uh, So anyway, like much of the literature on the effects of intervening early, right, in in, in kids' lives and interventions, this one shows tangible long-term benefits to early life health interventions for kids who are at risk medically. It's kind of shocking to me that the threshold is so low, right? I mean, that it's is hard to believe that, you, you, what, you can be four pounds and, and they think you don't need to be in a NICU? I, yeah, as a taxpayer, you could sell me on increasing that threshold just, pretty yeah. easily. Right. I mean, like, that, yeah. that's one big tech, right? Incorrect, yeah. right. I mean, it, and, and, and keep in mind, sure. this is a recommended, I mean, it's not even like an automatic thing. It's, yeah. a, it's a recommendation by the pediatric did association. Did they know if the kids got those services or got? Uh, they uh, they did not, they did not, weren't able to go in and sort okay. of check. All right. right. But they, yeah. They, wow. But it's, yeah. Fascinating. I mean, yeah, I, I have a couple comments. One is, I, you know, I, I, I'm sort of, my cohort is, <laughs> having children right now (laughs) and um it it seems as though the science is just continuing to push back the like sort of the date at which you should intervene right Mm -hmm. so it used to be early childhood and now it's like well oh yeah just i mean Mm -hmm. it's 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 literally to like the first few hours now right Mm -hmm. and um i i just think yeah i i i were you convinced by the study design? Because I was. You were. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's. And I'm convinced by, you know, when you look at the folks who are doing these types of studies, it's just amazing, right? The credentials that they have and just all the way they go in and you know how they try to, they've got 15 different robust and sensitivity tests that they're running to try to make sure that they're, the wheels aren't falling off. And then they looked at, which I didn't even get into, half the papers looking at potential mechanisms. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was. Uh, was it right. I mean, were, were they able to disen- right, disentangle the mechanisms at all? Because Not really. They looked at a survey where, t- where 
um, parents talked about their stress levels and that sort of thing and tried to figure out, you know, were there, were there other things going on that might be intervening? Where Obviously, when you have a child born at that low birth rate, the whole community sort of rallies around, right? And you've got some other things going on. So I think they did, you know, what they could to try to disentangle that through some of these surveys um, where they asked the mothers, but the response rate was pretty low on those. I mean, I've said this before, possibly not on the show to Mike, mm-hmm. but I, I, I mean, I do sometimes feel like, uh, education is a kind of second fiddle to, I mean, there's a ma- sort of hierarchy of needs when it comes yeah. to kids, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah, I mean, course. I'm not sure that education ultimately has as much leverage as simple health interventions, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, that's right. I mean, the lead stuff is really uh, powerful. Right. Mm-hmm. The, I would say, though, let's think ahead a generation. And you say that the question would be, what can schools do so mm-hmm. that when children today grow up to be parents tomorrow, uh, you know, they might be in a better position uh, you know, to, you know, on these fronts, right? I mean, you know, what, what is it that's causing the low birth weight baby thing to begin with? Well, some mm-hmm. of those things are, you know, poverty and other stresses and environmental and age mm-hmm. of the mother and all those kinds of things. You know, I do think in improving your education system, getting better outcomes can have an impact on the next generation. Mm-hmm. And we've seen that. And, right? and, mm-hmm. and the intervention, I mean, it has... It has elements of parental education too, right? I don't right? know. It didn't talk about that. But they're yeah. coming and they're-, they're I mean, the, they said there's a follow-up. I don't know what the yeah. follow-up entailed okay. when they went home. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Oof. they didn't, yeah. Good stuff. But both and, David, both and, not either or. Yeah. That's right. Mm-hmm. We're on the same page here. Right? Yeah. <laughs> all right. Thank you, Amber. Yes, that was indeed. great. That cool. is all the time that we've got. So until next week- I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapwise Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.